Dinah Lance is a fighter, and her one-woman war is against the czars of crime, the frightened men who dread the blonde bombshell, otherwise known as Black Canary. Flowers and Fishnets, your best source for reviews of Black Canary comics. I'm Ryan Daly, and this time I'm going crazy by reviewing not one, not two, not three, not four, but three issues of Black Canary's first ongoing series. Today I'll be looking at issues four through six. All three issues were written by Sarah Byam, penciled by Trevor Von Eden, inked by Bob Smith, lettered by Steve Haney, colored by Julia Lockman, and edited by Mike Gold. All three issues had a $1.75 cover price for 24 story pages. All three issues had cover art by Trevor Von Eden. And all three issues came out in 1993, just like this song. Canary number four has a cover date of April 1993, but came out on February 16th of that year. Von Eden's cover has a brushed painterly style that shows Black Canary holding a bladed spear to one guy's throat, while a red demon-looking guy comes up from behind her with an axe. The corner tag reveals the story's name, The Art of War, with war being spelled W-H-O-R-R. This is War as in Jacob Warsman, the character with the most laughably stupid name since the Gay Ghost. In fact, I would rather legally change my name to Gay Ghost than Jacob Warsman. If you remember back in issue 3, Black Canary lost the heel of one of her boots during her fight with Tyson Click. This issue picks up on that thread. Dinah brings her boots to a small Seattle books and boots shop to get repaired by an aging man named Tony Sincelli. Apparently, Dinah goes through boots pretty regularly at her night job because Tony gives her some crap about it. He also questions what she gets up to that she's always damaging her footwear, and he does so in a way that lets us know he knows exactly who Dinah is and what she does. Tony is retiring soon, passing his business on to his niece, Sophia, who insists on being called by the shortened Thea because she's so hip and independent. But Tony says he'll come out of retirement anytime Dinah needs her shoes fixed. As Dinah leaves, she passes two large Japanese men going into Sincelli's store. She glances back and sees the men shaking Tony down for rent money that he doesn't owe. Dinah doubles back and confronts the enforcers. She kicks them, 
literally kicks them out through the window. Tony admonishes Dinah for not letting him take care of the problem himself. She corrects him that she didn't fight them as Dinah, she did it as Black Canary. Tony goes inside, leaving Black Canary to talk with Thea. Later, as Dinah goes home, her narration reveals that Thea gave her the impression that the store's neighborhood, colorfully referred to as Garlic Gulch after the original Italian immigrants that settled there generations ago, is dying from economic neglect which doesn't make sense to Dinah given the influx of population and industry in Seattle. Neighborhoods don't just die of neglect here, she thinks. Somebody has to kill them. Cut to the Tri-Telesar building and our friend, CEO Jacob Warsman. Warsman is on the phone with the mayor, explaining his plan for urban renewal that includes bulldozing Garlic Gulch and putting up new, fancier housing units. The mayor refuses to greenlight Warsman's development plan unless 10% of the new buildings are set aside for low-income housing. They argue, and the call ends, leaving Warsman frustrated. Then his secretary comes in to tell him his next meeting is waiting outside the office. Warsman changes his demeanor, turning friendly and flirtatious with his secretary, Miss Turner. He gives her a look that is predatory and patronizing, and a little rapey, I think we're supposed to infer. Then he sends her out and greets the developers to talk about their agenda for the gulch. Alright, let's stop to look at the beginning of this issue. The first seven pages with Dinah and Tony Sincelli and Fia are already better than anything from issues one through three. Sarah Byam displays honest-to-goodness excellence in Tony Sincelli's characterization. He's a lovable, playful, grouchy old coot. We learn that he used to be a boxer and that he went to war with the mafia to clean up the boxing rackets. They shot him five times, but he never quit fighting. We learn all this in a minimal amount of time, and it shows Dinah's obvious respect and devotion to this man and his small business. At the same time, she wants to protect him. She doesn't tell him, I'm Black Canary and I go beat up drug dealers and hit men at night. He knows that's true, it's the worst kept secret in the world, but she won't confirm it because it gives him plausible deniability and better security. Then there's Fia. She only gets one line of dialogue in these pages, but it's full of bitterness and the disdain of a younger generation waiting for their parents to get out of the way. That's also probably the best-drawn panel on these pages, the close-up of Fia. Von Eden sells the anger beneath the surface. The rest of the pages look fine. Dinah is still ballooned up, while Tony's face has so many folds and wrinkles, it looks like it's about to cave in on itself. The art on the Warsman pages is subtly different, though. I kind of get the feeling Van Eden was aping John Byrne for these pages. Okay, back to the story. Dinah needs more information about the socioeconomic state of Garlic Gulch, so she goes to her best source of information about the streets, a news radio host named Gan Nguyen. Readers first met Gan in Black Canary's New Wings miniseries. Dinah visits him the next day as Dinah Lance. She's in civilian clothes and not wearing her wig, so her hair is short and black. This is the first time in the series that we've seen grown-up Dinah out of the Black Canary costume. Gan is a Vietnamese-American progressive activist who fights for equal opportunity and against discrimination and racial violence. He has unrequited romantic feelings for Dinah, as I imagine most people would if they saw her in real life, but she has kept him squarely in the friend zone since the end of the New Wings. Dinah and Gan get some Chinese food, and he tells her all about the growing violence and turmoil in Garlic Gulch. He lays the blame squarely at Tritelisar, and a conspiracy theory that the company is inciting violence and unrest in the area so that they can buy property on the cheap. 
exactly what we know Warsman is planning, except Gan links the dots between the company and the crime wave. Back at Tritelisar, Jacob Warsman has a meeting with a woman named Adrian. Her position is a little vague, but Horsman asks her to get six months' worth of insurance on a building he owns under a pseudonym, and he needs that insurance to be retroactive. This means fudging some books and insurance fraud, which you usually do on a property when you're planning to destroy it and claim the insurance for profit. Exactly what property he's referring to? We don't know. Yet. That night, we meet Tony and Fia coming out of a movie. Tony's eager to get back to the store, while Fia is extremely eager to go anywhere else. She tries to convince her uncle to stop for coffee and ice cream. It doesn't work. Finally, Fia stops Uncle Tony outside the store to explain that she's a grown woman with her own ideas, when all of a sudden, Cincelli's old books and old boots store explodes. Sophia, who stood with her back to the storefront, takes the brunt of the blast and is hurled across the street. Paramedics and firefighters arrive on the scene and put Fia on a gurney. Tony swears that he'll make the people who did this pay, and she begs him not to seek retribution. She begs him, but he doesn't listen. Instead, he digs through the rubble of his store and picks up an axe. Tony goes to the Kung Fu Dojo of the two Japanese thugs who tried to shake him down at the beginning of the story. Tony starts wrecking up their place with the axe until they come downstairs. Apparently, they were asleep. Tony goes after them with the axe, but they get the better of him. Before they beat Tony down, Black Canary arrives. Noticeably barefoot, because I guess Dinah Lance is the only woman in America with just one pair of boots. Canary grabs a kind of pole-axe weapon with a crescent moon-shaped blade. She plays defense, keeping the Japanese from killing Tony, and then stops Tony from killing them. She points out the fact that they're in their pajamas and just woke up. It's obvious they didn't blow up the store. For the second issue in a row, we end up at Harborview Medical Center. Black Canary and Tony Cincelli confront Fia in her recovery room. Fia had the store blown up so she could collect on the insurance and get rich, and so she wouldn't be tied to her uncle's old life decisions. Tony walks out of the hospital, sagging under the weight of his loss. Not the store, not his livelihood, but his own family. In the epilogue, we see Jacob Warsman looking at a picture of Black Canary. After the trouble she's been giving him, he says, Let's see if we can find a position for her, shall we? Somewhere far away. Say, perhaps, the Philippines. They like blondes. This is an unusual take, to make it sound like he wants to hire her only to sell her into slavery or something. He hired a knife-wielding assassin to kill a hooker last issue. Why would he concoct such an elaborate scheme for Black Canary? Or else, why create such a bizarre analogy for the last page? Anyway, we get a teaser that next issue is called Blind Woman's Bluff, with the word blind spelled in a way that only makes sense in 1993. Okay, the story is called The Art of War, and we spend a good deal of time with Jacob Warsman. At this point, Sarah Byam has set him up as the cutthroat businessman all too eager to crush the little guy in order to make money. It works as the foil for a populist hero like Green Arrow during this era, and since Black Canary is the spin-off slash sister title, it ought to work here too. The problem is we never see Warsman being outwardly evil. Yes, he has shady, less-than-ethical business practices. He did employ a killer in the previous story. Yes, he doesn't mind if people get killed as long as he gets what he wants, but it would be good to see him act out in an overtly cruel and deadly ways. For being the closest thing Black Canary has to a mastermind arch-nemesis, he's pretty pedestrian. 
Even his sexual harassment is passive-aggressive. I think the most conventionally bad thing he does in this issue is when he's talking to the African-American Seattle mayor and he refers to your people when talking about the black population. But let's get to what is good about this issue, and for once there is more good than bad. My favorite part is the inclusion of Gan Nguyen. I really liked him in the miniseries. He was a character that really didn't sound like any other character in comics. He had a unique voice and a unique mission, and he was uniquely Dinah's supporting cast. She doesn't have a lot of that. More often, she is the supporting player. Gan is a great source of info and exposition. He's also a social conscience that Black Canary can use as a counter to the cynicism and darkness of her vigilantism. Gan gives Dinah someone to talk to and someone to literally let her hair down around, which is great because it makes her more of a character and less of a plot point. That is the biggest difference between issues 1 through 3 and this one. In Hero Worship, Dinah just followed and reacted to the other characters. This time, she's taking initiative. She's being active. The other improvement is sympathetic secondary characters, like Tony and Fia. Unlike with... what's her name? The Mohawk prostitute who died last issue? I honestly can't remember her name right now. That's how little she mattered. These characters are interesting. They have a compelling family dynamic between a very old-fashioned patriarch who must pass on his business to a generation that wants nothing to do with her elders. And what's more important is that we understand why Dinah likes Tony, why she goes to see him, why she wants to protect him. Like Gan, Tony would be a wonderful addition to Black Canary's extended character family. But he's never seen again. Oh well. Canary 5 has a cover date of May 1993. The actual on-sale date, according to Mike's Amazing World of Comics, is March 23, 1993. Trevor Von Eden's cover shows Black Canary engaged in battle with some kind of ghost-like figure. It appears to be a woman with a hooded cloak that seems almost invisible. Once again, Von Eden can't just give us a simple action scene for the cover. He needs to complicate it by putting Dinah and her enemy in the background, while a long-stemmed black tulip obscures the fighters and part of the title. Again, the title of this issue is tagged in the upper right corner, and that title is Blind Woman's Bluff Part 1, with blind spelled like blonde with a Y instead of a O. The issue begins with Dinah Lance modeling her new boots for her boyfriend, Oliver Queen. She tells him that Tony Sincelli made these new boots to replace her old ones, and that these will be much more functional and protective. They're not the classic high-heeled pirate boots she used to wear, but instead durable leather flats. Ollie naturally complains that they don't show enough of her legs, because Ollie is a jackass. 
He also may be blind. That or there is yet another disconnect between the script and the art, because the new footwear barely covers any more of her legs than the old boots did. And she's not even wearing fishnets at the moment. Her big, fleshy thigh is front and center on this page. Dinah tells Ali that she has been hired by the Dutch Royal Floral Society to bodyguard an important cultural heirloom, which happens to be a black tulip. As Ali pleads with Dinah to take him with her so that he doesn't have to be responsible for managing her flower shop, Sherwood Florist, we reveal that a hidden camera placed somewhere is recording their conversation and broadcasting it on a TV screen in the recovery room of Tyson Click, the killer from issue 3. Click is not alone in the room. But it's not the police or hospital security with him. No, it's his sister, a stern-looking woman with short platinum blonde hair. She has a fanciful costume of purple and magenta and a large billowing white-hooded cloak. Click tells his sister that he wants another chance to kill Black Canary and defends his earlier failure to do so on faulty intelligence. He says the file on Black Canary says she's an ordinary human in a tight outfit, but Click disagrees. He thinks there's something more to her than that. To what file is he referring, and who would compile such data? We don't know. Then his sister leaves the room through the window, pulling her hood up and flying away. Click's sister is superhuman. Whether it's an innate part of her or it has something to do with her costume, she has superpowers, and flight is only the beginning. She flies to a mansion estate outside the city. Here she becomes invisible, or her cloak bends the light to make her appear invisible, something. And she uses this ability to sneak up on a sentry guard carrying a machine gun. Sister Click murders the guard before he can raise any alarms. Then she enters the mansion and proceeds to an inner office study. Seated at the desk of the study, draped in the shadows, a mysterious man refers to her as blind, as in the title of this story, B-L-Y-N-D-E. The man in the shadows says he wishes she would stop killing his guards. Apparently this is something she does often, just to prove the point that she is capable of doing it. But he warns her that it's both rude and presumptuous, I'd say. Interesting word choice. It's presumptuous to murder his armed guards every time she comes over to the house. Okay. Anyway, the man in the shadows, and for crying out loud, this is why people bash on comics from the 90s. The criminal mastermind at a desk, smoking and buried in harsh black shadows. This wasn't original back then. It was everywhere. This was either cliched writing or the inker and colorist covering up for the artist not wanting to draw more faces and bodies. Frankly, I would buy either explanation. Anyway, the man in the shadows rolls a cigarette for blind. Hey, at least this is sort of fresh and unique characterization. He rolls his own cigarettes. Um... And then he, wait, what the hell? His left hand is covered in black glove, and it's clearly artificial because he seamlessly pops off his index finger and lights her cigarette with the tip. His hand is fake, parts of it are detachable, and it's able to ignite flames. Okay, this guy is sort of interesting now. Uh, Mystery Man in Shadows with Crazy Hand goes on to tell Blind about the black tulip and how it's a priceless relic in Holland and how he wants her to steal it. Um, He tells her that when the tulip goes on display, Black Canary is going to be there as security. This part Blind should already know since Dinah was telling Ali about this in the video footage that was broadcast for her and her brother. Who made that video footage and why? Anyway... 
Whoever this guy is, he seems to know a little about Dinah because he knows Black Canary is a florist by day and he has files on what they consider her support net, which is just Gan Nguyen and Anti Ren. That's it, just two people from the New Wings miniseries. That's Black Canary's whole supporting cast. Nothing about Green Arrow or, you know, the freaking Justice League of America. Hell, no wonder Click said the file on Canary was incomplete. Speaking of Click, Blind asks her employer if she's permitted to kill Black Canary to avenge her brother's honor. Man in the Shadow says, sure, go crazy as long as you get the Black Tulip first. Cut to a dojo or dance hall where Dinah's getting thrown around by Ren. Dinah is there meeting with a man named Timmerman, a representative of the Royal Floral Society. They spout off some alphanumeric gibberish as part of a security code. Timmerman gives some pervy looks at Dinah in her leotard, and Ali is there to make dumb, sexist remarks because, as we already said, he's a jackass. After that, Timmerman gets on a private plane for Holland when we discover that Blind is already on the plane. Using her invisibility cloak, she creeps up to him and stabs him. Then she murders the pilot and takes command of the plane. Dinah says goodbye to Ali at the airport and gets on her own plane bound for Holland. She does so, by the way, in costume, with the fishnets and a fashionably fur-collar-lined leather coat. At the airport in Holland waits a woman named Mrs. DeKuyper, who was assigned to pick up Black Canary and take her to the Black Tulip. Blind arrives first and poisons the woman, dropping her body in the ladies' room and taking her place when Black Canary arrives. Dinah is skeptical of this would-be Mrs. DeKuyper because she seems way too young to be, what, a chauffeur? I'm, I'm not sure what Dinah was expecting. Blind drives Dinah to her hotel instead of trying to kill her. Dinah is still bothered and happens to look out the window at the right time to see the woman she thought was DeKuyper put on a white cloak and disappear. Hey, that was pretty convenient timing, huh? Knowing something's wrong, but not having a clue what, Dinah goes to the Tulip Exhibition Hall wearing her Black Canary outfit and, hey, she's wearing her old high-heeled pirate boots. Why isn't she wearing the new boots that were specifically shown and explained on page one? Did Trevor Von Eden forget about that, or was this changed? Black Canary enters the Exhibition Hall and turns on the lights to reveal a pair of dead security guards covered in blood and blind about to steal the Tulip. Canary sees Blind turn invisible and the Black Tulip vanish, then senses an attack and manages to throw Blind into one of the exhibits. This sets off the alarm and the other security guards call their boss, Mr. DeKuyper. Black Canary and Blind fight in the exhibition hall amidst broken shards of glass and splintered wood. Blind puts a foot on Dinah's throat, but Canary takes out a switchblade and stabs the assassin in the leg. What's with these knives? This is twice in the last three issues that Black Canary has used a knife she happens to carry on her costume. As she's leaving, Blind murders Mr. DeKuyper and leaves him to bleed on Black Canary. The issue ends with two more security guards walking in on Black Canary, cradling a dead man. Things don't look good for Black Canary, and that is both a statement on the plot and a critique of the art. Yeah, the art isn't anything special in this issue, but it's not too bad comparatively. There are some baffling choices in this issue, like a full-page spread of Blind impersonating DeKuyper at the airport, why was this a full page? It's not a flattering image, and it only barely furthers the story. Could it be because Sarah Byam and Mike Gold couldn't come up with 24 legitimate story pages, so they started puffing up places where that couldn't hurt the flow of the story? As for the story, there's some really good and some really meh. I'll start with the uninspiring so I can hopefully end on a positive note. 
Most of the backup characters in the story are lame or colorless. Literally. We don't feel anything for the two Dekypers when they get murdered because Dinah has no connection to them before they're killed. We don't fear or care about the man in the shadows because he's just the 578th version of this same trope in the month of March 1993 alone. Who is he? Why does he want the tulip? Why does he employ murderers? Why does he have some bad information about Black Canary? Why can't we see his face? What's so special about his identity? Then there's Oliver Queen. I'm not even sure why he's in this story other than to remind us that he and Dinah were a thing. He doesn't take up her spotlight, which is good, but he also doesn't contribute anything, which is bad. There are two legitimately great things about this issue, though. First is Dinah's mission, something that combines her superheroics and her familiarity with flowers. She's supposed to babysit a rare and delicate tulip in a foreign country with spies and killers coming out of the woodwork to get her in the flower. That is awesome. That's high entertainment, friends. I love that setup. We also get a new villain, and how cool she could be. Aside from the stupid-ass name, Blind, spelled stupidly, she looks great and she's got a great gimmick. Her white cloak is huge and ghostly. When it comes up over her head, she's got this kind of demonic Jawa thing going on. She can also turn invisible and has some limited flight. Maybe it's more like gliding, like a flying squirrel. Blind is ruthless. She kills seven people in this comic and tried to kill more. I'm not sure if Vanid meant for her to look so unattractive without her hood, but she does look old, hawk-like, and weird. Again, this comes across as a lack of communication between script and art, because Dinah thinks Blind, while she's impersonating DeKuyper, can't be older than 25. Is this the artist not reading carefully enough, or is this the script changing after the art is done? I don't know. The big takeaway is Black Canary has precious few costumed villains that are all hers, so Blind could be one of the best by default, but that doesn't knock what's really interesting about this character. Okay, issue 6 is cover dated June of 1993, but hit the shelves on April 20th. It's a 420 issue, that makes a lot of sense. The cover shows Black Canary fighting blind in what might be the exhibition hall, which looks wrecked. There's broken windows, broken displays, and black tulips everywhere. What there isn't really is faces. Dinah and blind both have their faces mostly covered. Okay, page 1. Oh my god. Oh, Trevor Von Eden, what the hell? He drew a four-year-old girl's head on a big girl's body. The shape, the scale, the pose, everything about this is unflattering as hell. And Dinah looks like she's going to throw up. This is the worst page yet. This is one of the worst pages I've ever seen. I would put this comic back on the rack and not buy it if I flipped through and saw this on page one. Ugh. Blind Woman's Bluff Part 2 is called Caged Canary and finds Dinah Lance in a Dutch jail cell. 
charged with killing three people and failing to prevent the Black Tulip National Treasure. She has been stripped down to her leotard and handcuffed at the wrists and ankles. Her wig, her jacket, her fishnets, and her boots are all taken away. Oh, and the last thing she thinks in the caption on page one is, Oh, Oliver, I want to go home. You can't see my face right now, but trust me, it looks like I'm having a stroke. Every time I look at this page, my eyes turn red and I smell burning eggs. <sighs> Two guards enter the cell with Dinah's food. She complains about the way they've treated her and the fact that she's been in a cell for 72 hours without a phone call or contact with the American consulate. One of the guards takes off her handcuffs so she can eat, but instead she throws the tray of food in their faces and attacks. She goes to take one of their guns, but she's pistol-whipped by the other guard. Once Dinah is on the ground, the guard tells her how much he liked Mr. and Mrs. Kuiper, two of the people she's accused of killing, and then he smashes his pistol into her head again, leaving her on the floor with bleeding head trauma. Well, that's familiar for Black Canary. She got pistol-whipped every other issue of Flash Comics in the Golden Age. Okay, I skipped something on page three, and I need to go back. I skipped it because I don't understand it. On panel four in the lower left corner, Dinah has picked up one of the guard's guns, and she fires it. There is muzzle flash and the blam sound effect. What's not clear is what she's shooting at, because the only thing in front of the gun is the stomach of the guard. She's not shooting the handcuffs because they already took those. Oh, oh, okay, oh, I just got it. Oh, I just got it. She's shooting the cuffs at her ankles. She's still bound at her feet, and that's what she's shooting at. We just can't see that, of course, because Trevor Von Eden, like an asshole, didn't draw the chains around her ankles in this panel. You know what? Pretty soon I'm going to have to review some of Von Eden's Bronze Age stuff with Green Arrow and Black Canary, or at least I'm going to have to read the Black Lightning series to remind myself that he was a real artist, because as I go through this Black Canary book, I find more and more stuff to hate. Okay, all right. Black Canary gets up, recovering from her beating, when she finally meets with a lawyer named Jeffrey Lamb, who was sent to handle her case after Oliver Queen and Amanda Waller threw up quite a fuss. Back in the United States, I assume, Blind returns to the mansion of Mysterious Man in the Shadows, who we finally get a name for, I think. She calls him Severance, which, okay, that's fine. Their relationship is certainly contentious now, as he thinks she's overstepping her bounds, not knowing her place since he was born wealthy and she wasn't. Severance is mad that Blind failed to kill Black Canary, since she requested his permission to kill her in the first place. Severance says that he has arranged for her brother, Tyson Click, to kill Dinah. While Blind protests, Severance grabs her by the back of the head. His whole left hand glows with energy, and it fries her head, leaving a handprint scorched in her scalp. Back in Holland, Jeffrey Lamb secures Dinah's release from prison to clear her name. She submits to a grueling strip search that probably should have happened before she went to jail. Then she's given her black costume back, as well as a tracking bracelet locked around her wrist. By the way, when she gets her costume back, yeah, she's wearing her old high-heeled boots again, the ones that were destroyed in the Cincelli's explosion. The ones that weren't on page one of issue five when they explained that she got these new boots. I have no idea what happened between that page and issue five and the rest of these issues. Maybe Von Eden forgot, or maybe that first page was added later. 
I don't know, but I have a feeling the change in Boots was intentional, though, because I remember reading in the letters columns in the early issues and in New Wings that people wanted Dinah to change costumes. They thought her look was impractical and the boots were outdated. I understand the point of making her footwear more practical and functional, but considering what Black Canary looks like by the end of this series... You know what, I'll get to that when I get to it. Black Canary is released into the custody of CIA agent Eddie Fires, who was a semi-regular fixture in the Green Arrow comic going back to the Longbow Hunters. Dinah's not thrilled to see Eddie. She doesn't trust him, but he takes her to the morgue to examine the bodies and the evidence left by Blind. Hey, it's been well over three days. How long do the bodies stay there? Blind wakes up in an alley with a note from Severance literally safety pinned to her clothes, telling her to report back in three months after she's had an attitude adjustment. Blind responds by breaking into Severance's mansion, stealing the black tulip, and then burning the house to the ground. I'm going to come back to that. Outside the Tulip Exhibition Hall, Canary and Eddie talk about the strip of fabric from Blind's costume when someone pulls a gun on them. Eddie pushes Dinah out of the way and takes a shot to the shoulder. Canary kicks the gun out of the shooter's hand, said shooter being Click, I guess. The art does not sell this reveal, which was already difficult because Click does not have a signature look. All we get is that he's got bandages on his face because he was in the hospital. But the art and the coloring fail in this reveal utterly. The only way Click's identity is really confirmed is when Black Canary starts chasing him up the fire escape to the roof of the exhibition hall and shouts, Hey, didn't I throw you off a building recently? Which she didn't, really. That's, that's not how it happened in issue three. They get to the roof and Click grabs a large metal pipe, like from an air vent or a chimney stack or something, and swings it like an oversized club, which of course doesn't work. Canary knocks him down, so Click takes out a knife, which was supposed to be his signature weapon, I thought. No good this time. Canary effortlessly disarms him and Click rants about how she's not human. No human woman could capture him. As she's binding his hands, Blind sneaks up on them and pushes them both through a ceiling window. This is, remember, this is, Click is her brother, and she's just going to push them both through the window. At the last minute, Black Canary grabs Blind's cloak and pulls her down. All three of them fall what looks like a hundred feet at least, and crash into a floral display, which is all wood and glass. Guess how many of them survive the fall? Yep, all of them. Blind and Black Canary throw down in the dead flowers and broken glass. Click draws a gun on them, but Eddie Fires gets the drop on Click and holds a gun to his head. Black Canary kicks and punches Blind into unconsciousness, and that ends the fight. Dinah asks Eddie if he can believe Blind and Click are related. Wait, how the hell does she know they're related? When was that revealed to her in this fight? They never said anything about that. Damn it, why does the script have to ruin what should be an exciting story? At first, they think the Black Tulip is gone for good, and that whoever has it will be rich for life. Eddie reveals that he picked it up. I don't know when or where, but he got it. Dinah asks how can she ever thank him. He whispers something in her ear, and the last we see is Dinah storming off, leaving Eddie with a bloody lip. That ends the story, Blind Woman's Bluff. Okay, first I want to look at the characters, and I'll start with Eddie Fires. I've read a handful of his appearances, but most of them were long before or long after this issue, and neither did he look or act like this. Trevor Van Eden draws him like a young, good-looking, suit-wearing agent. This doesn't feel like Eddie, but it actually feels a lot more like a modern incarnation of Larry Lance, and that I love. 
I like that Dinah needs him for his connections, his resources in the government and law enforcement, but she's the real hero. I also like the moment at the end. I love the moment at the end, I'll be honest. I get a bit of a teehee juvenile giggle imagining what he might have suggested to get her to slug him in the face. It makes sense that Eddie would propose something sexual, and given Eddie's nature, I can imagine it was probably something dark and kinky. Then we have the three villains in this story. I don't know anything about Severance, and I don't recall if he comes back in the series or not. I'll find out when I reread those issues. As a generic mystery bad guy, he's pretty lame and cliche, but his hand, that's interesting. His left hand is artificial, it can light cigarettes and burn people with a touch. That's cool. But his whole relationship with Blind feels very confused. He underestimates her disregard for his security and his property, so that throws more questions on her. Why does Blind work for him? Why does she burn down his house when he hurts her? I mean, I do understand that that is a perfectly natural, vengeful response. But why wouldn't he see that coming? Is she crazy? I guess I expect a hired assassin to usually work for a mastermind with some kind of leverage over them, be it personal or financial. This feels like there is no leverage over Blind. Almost familial. I wonder if Severance is her father or they have some kind of connection like that. But he does say that he came from money and she didn't, so that doesn't make sense. But she does try to hurt him deliberately. She burns down the house and takes the black tulip. She doesn't need it. She could sell it and make money, but... This, again, this feels very confused. And one of these two characters looks foolish, but I can't decide if it's Severance or Blind. Then there's Click. I want to see more Black Canary villains, and I wanted to learn more about Click, but this didn't really work. I'm not sure why he was in the story. I'm also not sure why Click and Blind had to be brother and sister. When you have siblings and superheroes or supervillains, typically they're both powerful in some way, like Quicksilver and Scarlet Witch. But here, Blind has a power, and I still don't know if it's internal or if it's the costume, but she can turn invisible and fly slash glide. Click has no powers. It's like if Scarlet Witch's brother was the Punisher. I think there was a lot more to do with this relationship. There was the yin-yang color distinction. Click has black hair and dressed in black. Blind has light hair and a white costume. And they're both killers, and they both like to stab people. Beyond that, though, I wanted more. Specifically, I wanted more from Blind. I really, really like her costume. I like her gimmick. She is dangerous. She is brutal. She's a little crazy. She definitely has the potential to be Black Canary's greatest personal villain. But nobody else ever picked up on her after this. Trevor Von Eden did a much better job with the action in this story. In fact, his fight scenes with Canary and Blind in both issues were clean and easy to follow, mostly. There are some weird choices at times. There are some god-awful panels and poses. There are some pictures I just can't look at without shaking my head. This was the 90s, and this was Black Canary. She can't always be drawn by Neil Adams or George Perez. I already said I liked this story. It wrapped up a little too quickly and conveniently. I felt that Dinah was taken out of danger by the fact that the bad guys wanted revenge. She didn't have to work to get out of trouble. She didn't have to solve the mystery. She just let the criminals undo themselves. Still, it had a flower connection. It had new villains. It had Black Canary kicking ass. Those are all things I like, and I feel like asking for anything more might be greedy at this point. And now, Canary Correspondence, where I read your comments and give shout-outs to the people who promoted this show on social media. 
Twitter favorites came from It's Plastic Man, Cash Flag, and Sin. Twitter retweets came from Cash Flag. Once more, a few listeners left comments on the blog, blackcanaryfan.blogspot.com. And for those of you who do take the time out to post a comment, I want you to know how genuinely I thank you for the time. It's awesome. There are about a dozen podcasts that I subscribe to on iTunes, and a couple of others that I check out from time to time. There's a handful of other comics-related blogs I check out every week, and I would like to leave comments on all of them, but I rarely leave comments on any of them. Part of it is lack of time, another part of it is just not having anything valuable to add to the discussion. When I can, I try to help those shows by writing an iTunes review or promoting them on Twitter. That's much faster and much more immediate than going through the show and really breaking it down for discussion. So to those of you guys who do do that on my podcast or for other people's podcasts, treat yourself to something nice. You earned it. You're good people in my book. Okay, exactly who am I talking about? Well, the first comment is from Chris Franklin, one of the co-hosts of the Supermates podcast, which if you've never heard, you gotta check it out. It's such a good show. Regarding episode 5, Chris writes, These are both solid late Bronze Age stories. The DC of this period is my DC, so I'm predisposed to like these, and I do. I picked up this DCCP at a con a few years back. Again, Dinah having romantic feelings for the man eventually revealed to be her father is all kinds of wrong, especially since Conway co-wrote that one. I know, I keep harping on that, but yuck. Other than that, it's a fun story with both Soups and Dinah portrayed nicely. I've always rolled my eyes when DC characters scoff at ghosts. How many times have these people rubbed elbows with the specter? JLA Annual Number 1 was one of those big dollar comics that was totally worth the price. I missed Batman, but it was nice seeing Jon Stewart again. He was in some GL issues shortly before this, and of course would become the full-time GL in a few years. I always liked the Simon Kirby Sandman's costume, but his adventures are... bizarre. Hoberg and Giordano's art looks about as steeped in the house style as you can get, with many poses swiped directly from the style guides of Jose Luis Garcia Lopez, praise be his name. But I think DC was pushing those on artists, and Hoberg came from an animation background, so it all makes sense. Another great episode. You know, Chris has such strong feelings about that moment in Dinah's history where she's revealed to be her own daughter-slash-clone that I think we're going to have to actually read those issues and talk about them. That right there, folks, is a preview for an upcoming episode. Ange, who writes the wonderful Supergirl blog that you can find at Comic Box Commentary, wrote, I remember picking up that DCCP for a dollar at a con about a year ago and being very impressed with it. I liked that Conway does allow a little bit of exposition, giving us Black Canary's origins. I firmly believe that these team-up books were a way for companies to expose readers to their universe. I loved Brave and Bold and DCCP, and discovered the Creeper, Metamorpho, Commandy, etc. So this could be someone's first exposure to Canary, and learn about her unique Earth 2 history. And it is hard to believe that this would be Dinah's first exposure to the Fortress of Solitude after being around for so long. I am one of those fans who think Superman would prefer Clark, so I liked that line. And I liked the easy discussion between the two characters there. Dinah does shine in this issue, as you say. Strong, determined, and faithful. Um, Personally, I too think of him as Clark Kent. I don't refer to Superman as Kal-El, nor do I think he would. And, of course, I got two pages of comments by Diablo Frank regarding the last two episodes. I think at some point Frank and I are just going to have to do a podcast together so that I don't have to record myself reading his comments. I can just let him talk, and when he's done, I'll pipe in with show enough or something. 
Diablo Frank has numerous blogs devoted to DC characters, including the idol head of Diablo, devoted to Martian Manhunter, Diana Prince as the new Wonder Woman, The Power of the Atom, Justice League Detroit, and DC Bloodlines. He's also the host of the Idlehead podcast about Martian Manhunter, and a co-host on the Marvel Superheroes podcast, the Underguides, and the Rolled Spine podcast. Writing of episode 4, Frank said, I don't have the same issues with ethics regarding the Kate Spencer Manhunter that you do, though I've yet to have a reason to see the character as anything other than DC's Daredevil knockoff either. In fact, she switched to being a defense attorney partway through her series as part of Mark and Draco's ham-fisted character arc. See, she was a rigid conservative and a terrible mother who gets better across the series. Grown. In my experience, the people in high-stress professions that are commonly held to the highest moral standards are usually the most compromised in their areas of expertise. It's easy from the outside for the public to decide what a professional should do, and quite a different matter when human beings in constant high-stress situations with limited resources will be able to accomplish. How often does a cop have to get jammed up trying to serve the greater good before getting home safe becomes their highest priority? How often does a firefighter need to get burned thanks to inadequate outdated equipment before they hang back? How many ambulance rides for the same junkie bum while hearing about some kid dying on a 911 because you were tied up before you figure, screw this loser? A prosecutor working under a budget in the Tea Party era of governance who borrows supervillain evidence to supplement her legal resources makes far more sense to me than a violent urban vigilante who takes on low-paying underdog cases as a career. It doesn't necessarily make for a better story conflict, though, unless you keep Spencer as a prosecutor who breaks the law in a sometimes very misguided attempt to defend it. Not unlike comic book fans, the thing you're most identified with and preoccupied by is often the source of great personal ambivalence when you seem to hate your chosen path at least as much as love it. So, of course, you won't pursue it as a platonic ideal, but as a chore. My problem isn't with Nightwing being a cop who fights crime through unlawful methods, but as an affluent, connected vigilante who would, wa- um, who would waste his precious time needlessly playing cops and robbers. Plus, there's no contrast when your work and personal lives are nearly identical. Regarding the conflict of people in high-stress professions, Frank and I are in agreement. You can get phenomenal drama and entertainment from stories about police and law enforcement professionals bending, blurring, and even breaking the rules to further the greater good or their own security. I have read amazing stories about that subject, but that's not necessarily what I want from my costumed superhero adventure stories. Maybe it's a matter of compartmentalizing the type of fiction I enjoy. Frank goes on, One thing that I liked about Arrow is that it figured out how to make Dinah the legacy heroine that has been one of her primary defining characteristics since the late Bronze Age within the context of superheroes being a recent phenomenon as in the New 52. In the absence of a World War II-era heroine mother, create a sister who was part of a cult of assassins Black Canary herself was sort of associated with a continuity ago. The Larry Lance thing is still weird, though. Speaking of which, if we have a singular ultimate Dinah Drake, should Larry Lance still be her dad or revert back to her beau so that the concept is more fully restored as self-contained rather than a Green Arrow adjunct? It restores the classic alliterative names and the Drake pun. Uh, Speaking for myself now, I would prefer Larry Lance being a love interest to a father. If we're building an ultimate Black Canary cherry-picking the best of the two Dinahs, I would prefer she begin as Dinah Drake. I like the alliterative name, too. She could still have a cop father in Richard Drake, as she was given by Jerry Conway in her first origin. 
I wonder if the weirdness of Larry Lance had something to do with modern writers changing the character altogether. Sarah and Laurel's father on Arrow is named Quentin Lance. There's no reason for the change unless you think Quentin plays better to the target demo. But even in the New 52 comics, the character was renamed Kurt Lance. There's no reason for that change either, so DC Entertainment must be actively distancing themselves from the name Larry Lance, possibly to avoid questions about whether Larry is Dinah's husband or her father. Uh, Frank continues, Please don't start a feature called Black Canary's Adversaries on this podcast. That sounds like the tagline of a dollar store Coke, soda-flavored beverage. How about Black Canary's Caged Birds, or probably more appropriately, her Jailbirds? You hurt my feelings there, Frank, but I can't disagree with you. I liked the rhyme of Black Canary's Adversaries, but it is extraordinarily on the nose, like Batman's Bad Guys or Green Lantern's list of evil people with which he fights. Jailbirds, though, is freaking brilliant. I'm using that. Frank asked why the story arc in Black Canary number one through three was called Hero Worship. Good question. I don't have an answer. It would make sense if it focused on Lil Dinah's first outing as Black Canary as a means of connecting or imitating her mother, but we never see Dinah Lance Sr. in that story. She's not involved. She's not even named. Frank says, I haven't seen enough of Arrow yet to speak definitively about their Ray Palmer interpretation. I will say that JLI strongly influenced my impression of Blue Beetle as a lovable loser gadgeteer, where Palmer on the show is much more of a focused A-type. From what little I've seen, Arrow Palmer seems more like an alternate road for Ray, rather than an inaccurate representation of Ted Kord. Brandon Routh is probably too sweet and charming for Ray, though, and I can't see him ever going savage a la Sword of the Atom. One other thing, my fondest memory of Dr. Destiny will probably always be his who's who entry with art by Rudy Neighbors. That was the highlight of the only issue of that series I bought off the newsstand. There's also a Martian Manhunter connection here, as the Getaway King made his second and final appearance as the member of Destiny's super gang in his debut story. You know, Frank, just imagine a DC universe where it was Monty Moran, the Getaway Mastermind, instead of the Calculator, who became the Anti-Oracle. He could be an information and technology broker to the super-criminal underworld, outfitting everyone with gadgets and means to escape the Justice League. Oh well. Speaking about episode 5, Frank says, You threw me off a bit with the David Guetta track, but I finally fully realized every musical digression on the show is femme-powered. Yes, Frank, that was true. Until this episode. I broke the rules for Tony, Tony, Tony. Frank says, Two things I forgot to mention on the last show's comments. If I recall correctly, switching from Ted Cord to Ray Palmer wasn't the Arrow show's choice. The availability of the Blue Beetle identity was taken from Arrow to be used elsewhere for undisclosed reasons. Maybe the Jaime Reyes pitch finally gained traction? Also, despite my defense of vigilante superheroes and law enforcement roles, I find Dick Grayson becoming a cop stupid. It flies in the face of the character at his conceptual core, and made it clear that Nightwing was the one member of the Bat family that Chuck Dixon did not get at all. I've always felt he torpedoed Dick in favor of Tim Drake, and his wrongheadedness laid the groundwork for Agents of Spiral. I had no idea that they weren't allowed to use Blue Beetle. I hadn't heard anything about a Jaime Reyes property being optioned or shopped around anywhere. That's news to me. But I'm glad we both agree on the lameness of Dick Grayson being a cop. Frank adds, I'm going to go out on a limb here and guess that the intended purpose of this episode wasn't to whet my appetite for a Jon Stewart discussion and thwart my hopes for the coverage of the Golden Age Adam story. Referencing a Kurt Swan Canary did make me think of her battle with Mongul a few months later in DCCP. 
I know Frank's referring to DC Comics Presents number 43, I think, but I haven't read that issue yet. It's in my shopping cart at mycomicshop.com. I would love to delve deeper into Jon Stewart's history. I've been reading a lot more of his early appearances, and the more I read, the more I like, although I am struggling to get into the mosaic period because Gerard Jones's writing can be a struggle for me at times. So much of my idea of Jon Stewart was based on his appearances in the Justice League animated series in which I thought he was boring as hell. When you're in a room with Batman and John Jones and the Green Lantern is the one who comes across as cold and emotionless, you've done something wrong. And I think the character in the comics since then has been cut from the same mold. But when you look back at his appearances in the 70s, he's got some real blood in his veins. I wish DC had pulled the trigger and made John or Black Lightning the first black members of the Justice League of America. But they didn't. Finally, Frank asks, So were we trying to reach for Dr. Destiny to join Black Canary's Jailbirds? Trademark pending. A pro is that there are no rules in dream fights, which could bridge the gap in power disparity. A con is that all the girl heroes get villains with dream-slash-mind-control powers, and that plays into icky themes of manipulation and it all being in her head. I'd like to see more of Dinah's fantastic rogues, but she always struck me as too grounded for this Freddy Krueger noise. Yeah, I would put Dr. Destiny among Black Canary's jailbirds with an asterisk because he wasn't created to be her villain, and she certainly doesn't have a monopoly on Dr. Destiny's attacks. Likewise, the Golden Age wizard wasn't created as a foil for Black Canary, but as we'll see in the next episode, he played a pretty crucial role in her history. As far as her personal rogues go, most of them are grounded and street-level. I think Blind, who we met in this episode, was about as fanciful as her enemies got. You know, unless you're counting werewolves and man-bears. And that's all for this episode. If you enjoyed the show, you can leave a comment on the blogger page, blackcanaryfan.blogspot.com. There you can also contact me with any questions or comments. You can find me on Facebook and Twitter at blackcanaryfan or at ryandaily01. I use both with the username Count Druncula. Flowers and Fishnets is not affiliated with DC Comics, and the views expressed on this show are mine alone. All music, audio clips, or quoted text are used for entertainment purposes and are believed covered under fair use. And I make no money from this podcast, so no copyright infringement is intended. Thanks for listening. 